Good morning to you all. I am Jamie, one of the pastors here. It is good to see you all. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of Lamentations, chapter 4. Lamentations, chapter 4. Here at PBC, we work through books of the Bible a little bit at a time, and uh, we are in the book of Lamentations, which is in the Old Testament. We've learned so far that Lamentations is a collection of five poems lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem, the hand of the Babylonians, in 587 B.C. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one provided for you in the pew in front of you. If you find one of those black Bibles, you'll find Lamentations chapter 4, beginning on page 689. Here's what we'll do. I'll read the first 10 verses of this very dark chapter. And then we'll pray to the Lord for help in understanding it, and then we will get to work working our way through it. In total, it should be around 45 minutes or so. Lamentations chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. Children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Let's pray. Lord, we're going to need help with this one. These are dark and heavy words. And so we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to do for us what you've done so many times and to teach us and to instruct us. 
to place Jesus before us and let us see him as glorious and precious, as beautiful. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. It was easier for Israel to conquer the promised land than it was for them to live in it. Crossing into the Jordan, the enemy had a face. There were giants in the land. But what happened when all the giants were gone? Well, then what? We've got to settle in the land. You've got to live there. And then what do you do when you learn that the biggest giants aren't the ones out there, but the ones in here? We'll more easily follow a general into battle than we will through the cleanup afterward. The internal battle, the one that's about rebuilding, is in some ways more difficult. And grumbling comes easier when you have a hammer in your hand than it does when you have a sword in your hand. And if you've been with us in a series of Lamentations, that you'll, you'll know that as a work of poetry, the structure of the book is as much a part of the message of the, of the book as the words. In chapters 1 and chapter 2, the writer, who we've called the poet, describes the upward walk of God's people through suffering, the suffering that came as a result of their unrepentant sin, a suffering which the Lord used as the least severe means to wake them up from their slumber by sending the Babylonians against them in order for them to turn and repent and believe and trust in him. And everything leads up to chapter 3, the middle part of chapter 3, where the poet writes, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That was the theological hinge of the book, the summit of the mountain. And the poet knows in his heart that though suffering is hard, that doesn't mean it's bad. And that the Lord will use it for his glory and even for the poet's good, his people's good. And then chapter 4 begins the walk back down down the backside of the mountain, as it were. And in many ways, the backside of the mountain is harder than the walk up the mountain. Even the structure of chapter 4 communicates this. The three-line stanzas of chapter 1 and 2 are shortened to two lines, as if the poet is exhausted, sort of stumbling down the mountain. The chapter ends with the Lord promising Judah that her punishment at the hands of the Babylonians has been accomplished and the exile is over. And yet she must sit in the aftermath of the destruction. The poet 
our narrator, has survived the invasion. He's been on the mountaintop with God, but now he must come down. You have to come down the mountain eventually. You've got to come back to the real world. You must return to the hobbled ruins of New Orleans post-Katrina. So Lamentations chapter 4 is a lament for the come down. For the disciple coming off the Mount of Transfiguration only to meet the boy with the unclean spirit. It's for the Christian coming home from the missions trip or from the Christian conference back to his church only to learn that it's the same old church. Lamentations 4 is for prolonged suffering. This is language to keep you through the day after the good day. And you should know that the Lord in his kindness has a deep and profound lesson for us in the come down. Lamentations 3 taught us to let the Lord be our hope and our portion. And Lamentation 4 shows us what that looks like in real time. And I'll be honest with you, this is a hard chapter. Because sometimes the come down is harder than even the suffering itself. There's that initial blast of heat of suffering on our lives that burns away the surface impurities. But in order to purify gold, you need prolonged heat. Conquering the promised land required Israel to trust God, that's true. But living in faithfulness in the promised land required faith of a different kind. On the backside of the mountain, we're confronted with what lies under the surface, what we'll call deep idols. So here's the big idea this morning. Lament through prolonged suffering, which the Lord will use to expose deep idols and to show us that he is our strength and he is our salvation. Lament through prolonged suffering, which the Lord uses to expose deep idols and to show us that he and he alone is our strength and salvation. The first part of Lamentations 4 is a depiction of siege warfare. In the old days when armies would attack, a lot of times instead of just breaking down the gates and storming into the city, which costs resources and costs lives, what they would do is they would surround a city and they would ban any coming in or any going out of this city. And with no imports, the people inside the city, the king inside the city, would eventually run out of food and run out of water. And they would begin to starve. And they would either become too weak to defend themselves, or they would just eventually surrender. Siege warfare is brutal. Verse 9 says it would have been better to just been killed by the sword than to starve like this. And prolonged suffering in Jerusalem has, 
has created a change in the people. You notice this in verse 1. Gold has grown dim. Now technically gold, pure gold, doesn't patina. It doesn't rust. It doesn't corrode. The, The writer means this metaphorically. Suffering has stripped precious things of their luster. When you're starving, when There's no food to buy. Gold is worthless. You can't eat money. On top of the mountain, back in chapter 3, the poet said, the Lord is my portion. He's my treasure. He's my prize. We just sang about it. He's my greatest possession. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have him. I have everything. On top of the mountain, the poet said, I will hope in him. To make the Lord your hope, to make the Lord your portion means not to put your hope in other things, things like gold. Gold loses its attraction. It loses its usefulness. And so their suffering stripped away the value of gold. And the Lord would teach his people not to put their trust and their hope in gold. And don't put your trust in people either. The precious sons of Zion, verse 2, are treated as common clay pots. We're seeing that during siege warfare, entire society is upended. Verse 3 and 4 and 10 are some of the darkest verses in the whole Bible. Starving children and worse. Jackals, which are usually thought to be mangy, detestable creatures, are found to be more compassionate than even the human mothers. Jackals are nursing their young while the human mothers in Judah do not. But rather like ostriches thought to abandon their young, they're leaving their young to starve. It's really hard to read verses 3 and 4 and 10 without a pit in your stomach, and that's by design. You're supposed to feel that. This is the ugly reality of a Babylonian siege. This is humanity undone. Giving in to sin never makes us more human. It makes us less human. Gold and precious stones are treated as nothing. They're left sitting at the head of every street. Those with distinction are treated as common. Mothers are not caring for their young. Whole society is being unraveled. In verse 5, the rich who feasted in luxury is starving in the streets, clinging to ash heaps. One wonders if this is a picture of digging through trash in order to find a morsel of food. When your city is under siege, your riches can't help you. Your fine clothing won't matter. And so we're seeing Judah's socioeconomic structure just come down. All sense of normalcy is lost. And the poet says that the suffering of Jerusalem is worse than that of Sodom, which if you remember from the book of Genesis, was destroyed by fire and sulfur. But their their death was swift, whereas Judah's death is a prolonged, a dying, agonizing, slow death. Along with their hope in money and social standing goes their hope in physical beauty. Verse 7, 
The princes, which were pure and beautiful, now their faces are black with soot. Their beauty is lost. Their celebrity is gone. They're not even recognized in the streets. Their beautiful skin is shriveled and dry like wood. They're like anyone else, dying from starvation. So Judah has lost all hope in money, lost all hope in human decency, lost all hope in her societal structures, lost all hope in beauty and celebrity. And still the poet keeps walking down the mountain, his knees his hips aching at every step because there is still more hope to be lost. Let's keep reading verse 11 and following. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe nor any of the inhabitants of the world that foe or enemy should enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, the people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests. No favor to the elders. Even in the heaviness of verse 11, there is a semblance of hope. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. The wrath of God is spent. It comes to an end. Contrast this with Lamentations 3.22. The mercies of the Lord never end. The anger of the Lord is over in a flash, but the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is slow to anger, but abounds in steadfast love. But nevertheless, Yahweh's wrath is real, and it is severe. And the nations of the world look on, incredulous. I mean, how could this happen to Jerusalem? This is a city of God. This is the location of the temple of Yahweh. But the poet explains, this is not random. The destruction is appointed one. Verse 13 says, it was for the sins of the prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. You see, the Lord does not act like capricious, unpredictable gods of the Greeks and the Romans. The Lord gave decades of warning. The prophet Jeremiah himself warned God's people of this for 40 plus years. But he wasn't the only one. With him, with him was Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Ezekiel, all of them pulling the fire alarm. But the false prophets in Judah kept resetting the alarm. 
Jeremiah would come out and he would write about what God was coming to do. He was coming with judgment and the false prophets would write contradicting the prophet. The priests would persecute Jeremiah, putting him in stocks. Once they even threw him in a cistern to kill him. Judah and her kings ignored Jeremiah and they listened to their false prophets. I mean, after all, who wants to hear messages of repentance and judgment? I'd much rather hear five steps to lead a happy and full life. So they gave their ear to those who lied about God. And the judgment of God that Jeremiah had predicted had come. And it was being poured out on the religious leaders in Judah. Those who were supposed to see, to lead God's people, were made blind. And they wandered through the streets. Those who were supposed to live lives of cleanliness and holiness and purity are defiled with blood. Those who were supposed to bring God's people near to God are cast away by God and his people. Those who were supposed to live close to God are being scattered away by God. Those who were supposed to regard the Lord more than others are being regarded by God as the least. And the Bible says no honor is shown to the priests or to the elders. He's coming down from the backside of the, of the mountain. And all hope is being lost. Hope in money is lost. Hope in human decency is lost. Hope in social status is lost. Hope in beauty and celebrity is lost. And now, hope is lost even in Judah's religious leaders. Those ear-tickling prophets and priests turned out to be wrong. In verses 17 to 20, the poet resumes his empathy and shifts to the first person plural. So you'll notice we and our dominate the next section as our poet is empathizing with the people who call down the judgment of God upon themselves. Let's keep reading verse 17. Our eyes failed. Ever watching vainly for help, in our watching we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, and our end has come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, unto his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Coming down the backside of the mountain, the poet and these people have lost hope in any outside military to come to their aid and deliver them. Notice the repetition of the word watching in verse 17. Under siege, they keep watching for help, and they watched in vain. We watched and watched and watched in vain for a nation that could not save us. And no nation would come to their aid and save them from the Babylonian invasion. And verse 20 is telling. Zedekiah, who is their king, He's called the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed. The Hebrew word is Messiah. 
He's the one about whom they said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. So as long as our king is with us, they thought we're going to be okay. I mean, after all, didn't God promise that a son of David would always sit on the throne in Jerusalem? So if the king's here, we're okay. You can see Judah's hope in her king. Well, the Babylonians waited long enough. They determined that Jerusalem's residents were sufficiently weakened, and they launched an invasion. And some put up a fight, and some died. And the army took King Zedekiah, and they tried to flee the city under the cover of night, but they didn't make it far. The Babylonians caught up with him. And they murdered the king's sons in front of them. And they cut out the king's eyes and they carried him off into exile to Babylon. If you have time this afternoon, you can read about this in Jeremiah 39 and 2 Kings 25. Now it's hard for us 21st century Americans to understand just the devastation of seeing your king conquered like this, captured like this, and carried off into exile. To witness the line of David, the Davidic dynasty ended, it would have felt like the final nail in the coffin. It would have been certainty that God has abandoned you, that his promises have ceased. This would have been utterly hopeless for those in Jerusalem. And so here you can see they're being stripped of their hope in everything other than God himself. Who would come to Judah's aid? Who would be her salvation? Not her king. Her blind king being led away in chains. Not her position as God's chosen people. The city's destroyed. The temple is destroyed. Everything of distinction is gone. And not the surrounding nations. Not a peep from them. Judah was being taught not to trust in the military might of surrounding nations or a military might at all. I mean, what did the, the, the psalmist sing? Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of our God. Something Judah had clearly not learned. The backside of the mountain has a way of unearthing these hidden idols these things that we turn to in times of crisis. And under siege, Judah should have been looking to her Lord. But instead, she's looking, watching in vain to the surrounding nations, looking to her king. And both failed her. There's one thing to say that we trust in God. But then when suffering comes... We see where our hope truly lies. Verse 21 and verse 22 leave us with a glimmer of hope. Which these, these two verses start off with a bit of, I don't know, poetic, prophetic snarkiness. Let's have a look at verse 21 and 22. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. 
But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. And then the poem ends. Verse 21 starts off really strange. Like rejoice. What is there to rejoice about? And who is the daughter of Edom? And why are they to rejoice? Well, a little background here. Edom, the Edomites, are the descendants of Esau, the older brother of Jacob. Jacob was one of the patriarchs of Israel, Judah. And Esau sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of soup. And the Edomites were his descendants. So, so they're like the cousins of Judah. The prophet Obadiah tells about this sin of Edom on the day of Judah's siege. When Judah is surrounded by the Babylonians, Edom stood aloof. Their cousins did not come to their aid. They watched as strangers carried off the wealth of Jerusalem. They did nothing while the Babylonians invaded the city. But I says that they even boasted in the ruin of Judah. And so the poet is being a bit snarky here. Go ahead, Edom, rejoice. Have your day, sing your dance. But know that one day this cup will pass to you. Do not be deceived, the Apostle Paul would write some 600 years later. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. She who failed to come to Judah's aid and gloated over her in her ruin will soon be covered in shame herself. Verse 22 leaves us with the only other glimmer of hope in Lamentations 4. The first was in verse 11, that the wrath of God was over. And the second is here with the same message. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. So verse 22 is effectively the it is finished of Judah's judgment. Her punishment is over. And there the fourth poem ends. And so what, what are we to do with this? Just left with this. Dark is the backside of the mountain. More difficult is the climb down than the climb up. Harder on the knees and hips. But we need the backside of the mountain just as much as we needed the experience on the top of the mountain. We need to know that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that his mercies never come to an end, and we need to see that in real life. It's one thing to say it. It's one thing to say you believe in it. It's a whole other thing to live it out. And so the poet and the people need this come down. And so do we. Because it's in the come down where the deep idols are exposed. 
An idol is anything that we look to other than God to give us what only God can give us. The late Tim Keller put it like this, an idol is anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And the come down exposes those deep idols in our lives, the ones that live just under the surface. The ones that live above the surface, surface idols are rather easy to see. Money, money is a surface idol. This is the guy or the gal who will work themselves to death in order to get money, in order to give them a sense of power, control, safety. They lack generosity, envious of those who have more, in a constant sense of that they deserve more than they have. Money is a surface idol. Sex is a surface idol. This is the guy or the gal who will turn to sex for a sense of love, approval, power. Success is a surface idol. Success is whatever. Success in every, anything. Success in family. Success in relationships. These can be surface idols. Some will do just about anything to have a family and to be in relationship with someone. To give them a sense that they are accepted and approved. To feel secure. Beauty is a surface idol. Because we believe that if we are attractive, then we will be accepted. But these are surface idols. These are just the giants in the land. And we need to deal with the giants in the land. But money and sex and success and beauty, it's not, it's not really what we're after. It's, it's what we think those things will give us. That's what we're after. Those are the deep idols. Power. Control. Comfort. Acceptance. Approval. And those are things that only God can give. And so God, who knows our hearts better than we, who loves us more than we could possibly imagine, takes us down the backside of the mountain to let our hope in those things perish. Let's our hope in those things fail to teach us to trust Him and Him alone. For power, control, comfort, and approval. And our greatest proof of this is that he sent his son Jesus Christ who lived a sinless life of obedience and went to the cross where the full vent of God's wrath was poured out on him to redeem hell-deserving sinners like us from our sin. To prove to them that all those other things will fail. So we must turn to him who will never fail. Jesus Christ is the true son of David to sit on the throne. He was not taken captive like Zedekiah. He went to his cross willingly. 
And under his shadow, God's people will truly find rest and peace. And in him, those whose lives have been ruined by sin, whose enemies proved to be unbeatable, whose neighbors offered no help, whose leaders have failed them, they will find hope in him. In him, they will be accepted. For in him, there are no exiles. Jesus Christ is the king who never fails. He's the one to trust on the front side of the mountain and the backside. He's more precious than gold, more compassionate than a loving mother, more beautiful than the princes of Israel, more faithful than the prophets. He's the one who always comes to our aid. He's the one we can always count on. And we can rejoice in him because he's the one who drank the full cup of God's wrath in our place. So my believing friend, I'm glad you came to church today. This is why Christians gather on the Lord's Day for, as we have for 2,000 years, to celebrate this one, this man, and to say that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And when you turn to him in faith, repenting of your sins, you will be forgiven of your sins and granted eternal life. Do that today. Before you leave the service here today, tell someone you'd like to become a Christian. We'll begin meeting with you and telling you more about this Jesus Christ. So Christian, when you're walking down the backside of the mountain, you know what you should do? You should just keep walking. Christ is with you, sustaining you, carrying you, giving you hope. And just know that one day soon, there won't be a backside of the mountain. There won't be a need to come down from the mountaintop experience. That will be your reality forever. But for now, prolonged suffering will expose those deep idols, the desire for power and control and comfort and approval. Let them be exposed and lay them at the master's feet and find your sense of power and control and comfort and approval in Christ. It's already yours. Because in Jesus Christ, you already have power. The greatest power of all. To say yes to Jesus and no to sin. In Jesus Christ, you already have control. In him, the end is already written. And you can trust in him. In Jesus Christ, you have comfort. You can rest in him and have peace with God. In him, you already have approval. You didn't have to make yourself beautiful in order for him to accept you. No, it's his acceptance of you which has made you beautiful. He's already defeated the giants. And all that's left for you is to settle in his kingdom and live in peace and in joy. For he is your hope and he is your salvation. And so then it will be true for you in the rightest sense. In verse 1, gold will grow dim. Pure gold will lose its luster. Because when Jesus shines so bright, everything else is dim. Let's pray. Father, would you receive our thanks for revealing to us the true state of our heart. Father, we admit that we are often 
poor students of our own faults and failures. And so we confess that we've despised the backside of the mountain, those times of prolonged suffering. We failed to see your gentle and loving hand in it. Will you please forgive us? Father, expose our deep idols and forgive us for looking to anything and anyone to give us what only you can give, what is already ours in Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our hope and our portion, our justification and our joy. Train our hearts to fear your name, to trust you, to lead us, to shape us into the image and likeness that you would have for us. To you belongs the glory. Amen. Now, if you please stand to your feet and receive the assurance of pardon. Having confessed our sins before a merciful God, we go to his word looking for an assurance of pardon. And today's assurance of pardon is one of my favorites from 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, let us sing of the forgiveness.